If you know me, or you're a regular listener to this show, then you'll probably know that I quite enjoy a good haunted house movie. I talked about my interest in ghost and supernatural horror in my review of The Grudge 2020, and I went on and on about my love for the genre in the episode where I talked about Netflix's The Haunting of Hill House. So when I saw that there would be a new movie based on The Turn of the Screw coming to theaters, I was interested. Then I found out that Mackenzie Davis would star in it, and I became more interested. Then when the trailer came out and I saw what looked like a dark and moody gothic-style haunted house story, I began to get my hopes up. It certainly looked good visually, but the visuals are only part of the formula for a good ghost movie. At least, for me they are. A strong psychological aspect is also a big part of most of my favorite films about hauntings. As I left the theater after having seen this new adaptation of Henry James's classic story, I felt like I mostly enjoyed the experience, but I had a difficult time working out exactly why I felt that way. There were certainly things I didn't care for, but the ending left me nodding my head in approval more than shaking it in disappointment. Still, I immediately knew the movie would be divisive at best. I had to take some time to really think about my initial reaction. In that time, my opinion has altered slightly, but I did get a greater hold on why I reacted the way I did, despite the movie going in directions that would normally have me rolling my eyes and putting it in the category of haunted house movies that failed to really do anything for me. Tonight, I'd like to share a bit of the thought process I went through as I take a look at The Turning here in The Last Theater. Welcome once again to The Last Theater. My name is Chris, and before I get into talking about The Turning, I'd like to remind you that you can find every episode of The Last Theater on cnjradio.com. The aforementioned episodes about The Grudge 2020 and The Haunting of Hill House are there, and I might just be working on a brand new franchise retrospective with Joey that you'll be able to find on cnjradio.com coming up in March. If you've listened to our previous franchise retrospectives, then you should have a good idea of what series we'll be talking about. It'll be good, so head over to cnjradio.com to find out how to subscribe to The Last Theater so you never miss an episode. Also, as always, since this is a review and analysis of a movie that has recently been released, the first part of tonight's episode will be spoiler-free, then I'll give a spoiler warning, and the last part of the show will give any and all spoilers. I definitely need to talk about the ending of The Turning, because a lot of my initial reaction all stems from the final few scenes of the movie. But for those of you who might just be looking for a review and recommendation without finding out too much about the plot, let's get into it. So, as I said, The Turning is a new adaptation of the Henry James novella, The Turn of the Screw. The original story was published more than 100 years ago, and in that time it's been adapted numerous times. The most famous adaptation has to be the 1961 film The Innocents. I only have a vague recollection of watching The Innocents, and I've never actually read the book, so I didn't have much of a basis for a comparison going into my viewing of The Turning. I think that was probably for the best. I find that a clean slate is often better for adaptations like this, otherwise I tend to compare too much as I'm watching. Reading a brief synopsis of the original novella, I see that the basic setup is more or less the same in The Turning. The story is somewhat modernized, taking place in the mid-90s rather than the late 1800s. The exact time the movie takes place doesn't seem to matter too much, but I feel like I should mention it because they did take an effort to point it out. 
A television program is playing in the background of an early scene, and it shows images of Kurt Cobain while mentioning that his death had only recently happened. I didn't get any real thematic significance of having Cobain's death mentioned in the movie, other than giving the audience a time frame for the setting, though now that I think about it, music does play a strong role in the characterizations of two of the main characters. I'm sure there's something there if I look a little deeper, but I digress. The setup is that Mackenzie Davis's character, Kate, has decided to leave her job as a schoolteacher to work as a governess for one young girl named Flora. Kate will leave her apartment and roommate, and she will go off to live in Flora's family home, a huge, isolated mansion. Kate will homeschool Flora and basically be her live-in companion. Flora seems to be a sweet young girl, but she also seems to be a little off. I wouldn't say she falls into the typical creepy little girl category, which I've talked about my, not necessarily distaste, but kind of tiredness of the creepy little girl trope, but quite the contrary. Flora is nice to Kate, but she's also a little distant. There's something odd and sad about Flora, but it typically comes across as mischievousness rather than darkness. The only other person in the mansion is Mrs. Gross, the caretaker of the estate. I believe Kate is either a college student or a recent graduate, so she is rather unsure of herself as she takes on this new role in a completely unfamiliar and intimidating setting. Mrs. Gross is extremely protective of Flora, having served Flora's family for generations and having basically raised the girl after her parents died just outside the grounds of the estate. Mrs. Gross is skeptical of Kate and her ability to take care of Flora, partly due to the fact that governesses don't seem to stay in the house very long. Kate feels the pressure immediately, and that feeling permeates the tense tone of the movie. Flora also has a brother named Miles, played by Finn Wolfhard of Stranger Things and the upcoming Ghostbusters sequel. Miles wasn't part of Kate's job description and wasn't even supposed to be at the house, but after he is suspended from boarding school, his well-being also becomes part of Kate's daily routine. He also becomes a source of increasing aggravation and, later on, fear. Miles comes across as utterly entitled and completely oblivious to the feelings of others. Flora looks up to Miles like a hero, but Kate quickly finds Miles' actions and temperament to be concerning to say the least. Miles comes across as manipulative and dangerous, and the interactions between him and Kate are some of the most interesting parts of the movie. Now, if you've noticed, I haven't said anything about any ghost yet. That's one of the things I really do like about The Turning. The supernatural aspects mostly come into play after we already have a good sense of the four main characters and the way they interact with each other. For the most part, anyway. There are a few scares early in the movie, and one in particular that I don't care for at all. But I'll save that for the spoiler section so as not to ruin anyone's jump scares. But yeah, I think a large part of the tension comes from the push and pull created by Kate, Miles, and Mrs. Gross. Kate thinks she's doing the right thing by trying to help Flora overcome some of her fears stemming from the death of her parents, or by reprimanding Miles, but Mrs. Gross denies that Flora or Miles could ever do anything wrong. Kate is determined to stick with it and not quit since she quickly begins to care for Flora, but the constant pessimism from Mrs. Gross and the creepy and demeaning actions of Miles are pushing Kate to her limits. Then, on top of all that psychological struggle, Kate begins to hear and possibly see things in the house. Of course, no one believes her, and that pushes Kate's mental state even further towards the edge. 
We start to learn more about the governess that left prior to Kate's arrival, and a sordid plot unfolds that may or may not have something to do with what Kate has been experiencing when she's alone in the house. The house definitely has a dark history, and that history has definitely affected the people still living in it. Is Kate starting to feel the effects of the house as well, or is her unease coming more from the house's living inhabitants? That's the main thrust of The Turning without giving too much away. I really did enjoy the psychological aspect of The Turning the most. I think that got somewhat lost with some of the late movie twists and turns, but then it brought it all back in a finale that I think was pretty risky. And what I mean by that without spoiling the final few shots of the movie is that I definitely think some people will feel cheated by the ending. Personally, I appreciated the risk, and I initially enjoyed the ending. I still do like what the ending says about the rest of the movie, but as I look back, I don't think I necessarily like how they got there. So, okay, if my intro tonight didn't put it across strongly enough, I really did have to think hard about how I felt about the turning. As I said, I left the theater enjoying the experience. I go to the same theater most of the time, and I'm usually there multiple times a week, so I've gotten friendly with some of the staff there. As I was walking out of my screening, my friend who works there asked me what I thought. Even though I was a little evasive since I didn't have time to process any of the things that the movie throws at you during the final few minutes, and it does throw a lot, I still said that the movie was good. I've thought about that, and I still think there are many good things about the movie, including the ending, but I also understand why a lot of people don't seem to like it. I saw the movie on the Thursday evening preview the week it came out, so I waited a few days before glancing at some of the reactions online. The review numbers are pretty bad. I didn't actually read any of the reviews because I don't really care, but I do like to look at numbers sometimes just to get a gauge of the general reaction. In general, people seem to hate the turning. Now, I try not to let popular opinions sway my own reactions, especially since the opinions are generally coming from a bunch of randos online, but could I really be that far away from the opinions of almost everyone else? That caused a bit of introspection on my part. I started looking into what I like about haunted house movies. For one, I love a gothic setting. This goes back to my love of the movie The Haunting from 1963. I talked about that at length in my Haunting of Hill House review, so I'll refrain from referencing either of those as much as I possibly can in this review, but The Turning immediately reminded me of both of those works in terms of setting. The Turning takes place almost exclusively in a huge, oppressive-feeling mansion. The grounds that the house sits on look cold and lifeless, and the interiors go from dark to darker. There are rows of statues, which did remind me an awful lot of The Haunting, and most of the rooms look cluttered and in various states of disrepair. It's a great setting for a movie like this, and I think it's one of the things that got me interested in the first place and kept me hooked until the end. Of course, gothic movies aren't just about ghosts. The classic Universal monster movies typically have a gothic setting, as do a lot of the Hammer monster movies that I love dearly. And yeah, there are plenty of other examples. I guess my point is, gothic doesn't really describe a movie's plot content so much as it gives a context for the movie's tone, if that makes any sense. Yes, there are visual and thematic motifs in gothic horror, but in my view, gothic settings tend to give a feeling of isolation and oppression most of all. Regardless of whatever monster is accosting the characters, one of the biggest sources of tensions and fear is the location itself. Of course, the locations have to be used well. Floria Sigismondi directed The Turning, and she has a great eye for darkly beautiful visuals. 
She is an artist and a photographer in addition to being a director, and she's done tons of music videos. Most notably to me, she did videos for David Bowie and Marilyn Manson back in the 90s, and I think those videos give a good example of the style that Sigismondi brought to The Turning. The house in The Turning looks opulent in wider shots, but upon closer inspection you start to see the disrepair that the largely empty house is in. As Kate explored the house further, we also began to see how much the interior and underside of the house was beginning to fall apart. In that way, the house and the land it sat on visually reflected not just Kate's state of mind, but it gave a bit of insight on how Flora and Miles might be struggling with their own mental states. And even though the turning didn't quite use the environment in the masterful ways like The Haunting or Kubrick's The Shining, I absolutely appreciated the visual metaphors. Really though, it is a little unfair to use The Haunting and The Shining as frames of reference, but the fact that I'm mentioning them at all means that The Turning was definitely on the right track. Now we don't really want to get too much more into how well the movie utilized gothic motifs, because that feels like it could be a longer analytical discussion all on its own, but I just wanted to try to illustrate one of the main reasons why I really did enjoy my time with The Turning. I love gothic stories, and The Turning fits that mold very well. It felt modern in many ways, especially in the subtext of entitlement and toxic behavior represented by Miles, but it also felt classic at the same time. I thought it was a very good balance. That's not to say the themes of oppression are necessarily new to gothic horror. Authors have used these settings to subtly convey a female perspective on the world for more than a century. One of my favorite short stories of all time is The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. It's a story about a woman's experience in an oppressive patriarchal society, but it's told as a gothic ghost story. Watching The Turning made me want to see a really good, big-budget version of The Yellow Wallpaper, and I think Floria Sigismondi would be a great director for it. She made the themes relevant in a mostly modern setting, but she didn't do it in a heavy-handed way. I like that. What I didn't like so much mostly came in the latter half of the movie. Other than the one jump scare I mentioned earlier that I'll explain more in the spoiler section, the psychological aspect kind of takes a back seat late in the movie as Kate starts to experience more supernatural events. There's a turning point in the movie where things go from subtle to overt in ways that I did not like. If you've seen The Haunting from 1999, the one with Liam Neeson and Catherine Zeta-Jones, then just think about how the final act of that movie went. It's very similar in The Turning, and it isn't good. Now, upon a first viewing, the audience won't necessarily know where the turning point I'm talking about is. It just seems like any other scene, but from that point on, the flashes of ghostly figures become much more real in Kate's eyes, and they begin to get physical. This is where some of the history of the house is spelled out, and it feels like a bit of an exposition dump. I don't like those. I know exposition is important, but let me figure it out as we go along. Don't just hand it to me in one scene. At this point in the movie, tension gives way to action, and I feel like a lot of the scariness is lost. However, with some mildly convoluted plot shenanigans, the movie backs up in a way and undoes some of what we've seen. I know this is probably kind of confusing, just me talking about it, but it's all I can really say without just outright spoiling the entire experience. I'll explain more in a minute, but first, let me wrap up this part of the review. As you've probably gathered by this point, most of what I've been talking about has been positive. In my introspective musings over the last few days, I figured out that the characters, the performances, the setting, and the psychological aspect of the turning are what kept me from disliking the movie when things started to go bad. The backtracking done by the movie itself is what confused my reaction. 
Did I like the final act of the movie? Not really, but I liked the overall message regardless of the way the plot twisted in on itself. I can safely say now that yes, I do like the turning, but I know it won't be for everyone. So how do I make a recommendation on this movie? Well, I think fans of gothic haunted house movies should at least give it a shot. Fans of things like The Others, The Woman in Black, and Crimson Peak will probably be most likely to enjoy The Turning. Fans of The Conjuring Universe, or the movies that has inspired, might tread a little more carefully, but, you know, Mackenzie Davis is great in The Turning, so I could recommend the movie based just on her performance alone. I think anyone else might just give The Turning a shot whenever it comes out to rent or on a streaming service. I think the ending really will be divisive for people. But that will do it for the spoiler-free portion of this show. If this is where you get off, then that means you might want to see The Turning and come back later to compare notes on the finale. If you do, let me know what you think. And for everyone else, hang tight for just a few seconds. Everything will be revealed after this brief intermission. Welcome back, and welcome to the Spoiler Zone. I've teased some of these spoilers already, so here's the first one I want to talk about. It's about the early jump scare that I did not care for at all. So, soon after Kate arrives at the mansion, she is shown around the place by Flora. Kate takes a liking to the young girl right away, but Flora seems to be somewhat guarded with her feelings. It seems like Flora has been hurt before, so it will take some time before she opens up to Kate. Anyway, Flora shows Kate around the house, and Kate notes that Flora failed to show her an entire wing of the house. Flora explains that she doesn't go into that part of the house because she doesn't want to, and Kate just banks that information for later, as does the audience. So far everything has been mildly creepy, but we haven't actually seen anything yet. Then, when Flora shows Kate her bedroom, Kate notices a mannequin with a face that seems to be a little bit too realistic. If I remember correctly, Flora explains that this was her grandmother's room, and she used the mannequin as a dress form for her sewing. Regardless, the face is unnecessarily creepy, so later that night, Kate moves the mannequin into another room so she can get to sleep. Kate leaves the mannequin in this other room, but the camera hangs on the mannequin's face. After a few seconds of a completely still shot, the head turns on its own to face the direction that Kate left from. So, I have a few issues with this. For one, it absolutely feels like nothing more than a cheap jump scare. I don't really recall a lot of jump scares throughout the movie, so for that reason it really stands out. Not in a good way, though. As we discover more about the supposed haunting in the house, we learn that it doesn't have anything to do with the grandmother. So, either I'm misremembering, which is possible, or this scare again felt unnecessary and unconnected to anything else. What really bugged me about this, though, was the fact that everything else supernatural in the movie is centered on Kate and the possibility that she might be going insane. I'll explain more on that in just a minute, but that was absolutely the impression that the ending of the movie gave me. If the haunting was in Kate's head, though, then why would a mannequin turn its head when Kate wasn't even in the room anymore? At no point did we ever see Kate notice the movement during or after the fact. So this one throwaway moment of cheap haunted house trickery undermined one of the major threads of the movie. If Kate wasn't there to experience it, it shouldn't have happened. Everything else up to a certain point was either seen or felt by Kate. 
It undermined the ending of the movie, and it should have been cut out. From here, I just want to jump into the final act. I don't think it's necessary to go over many of the plot points leading up to the big turning point that I was talking about earlier, because it's all pretty linear. Miles gets increasingly brazen in his actions towards Kate. Kate tries to help Flora overcome her fear of the outside world, but ends up pushing Flora away to a certain degree, and Mrs. Gross is constantly belittling Kate. Kate nearly quits, but she sticks it out for the sake of Flora. This all leads up to a scene where Kate receives a package from her mother. Kate's relationship with her mother is necessary to talk about now. I left it out of my spoiler-free review because I thought it would give too much away. I think people who have seen more than a few psychological ghost stories would pick up on what Kate's mother meant for Kate herself. Okay, so before Kate arrives at the mansion, she visits her mother. Kate's mother is in a mental institution of some sort, and when Kate goes to see her, her mother is by herself in this empty indoor swimming pool. Kate's mother is making charcoal drawings, and she barely seems to notice that Kate is even there. We don't get an explanation for why her mom is like this, but we don't really need one. The point is, Kate's mom is mentally unstable. So, cut over to the scene fairly late in the movie where Kate receives a package. Inside, there are some of her mom's drawings. The pages are mostly just solid black with charcoal, so something clearly is wrong, but Kate can't leave the house to go check on her. Mrs. Gross, who has been terrible to Kate the entire movie, has opened the package and seen the drawings before giving them to Kate. Mrs. Gross makes a snide comment about being glad Kate's mother's condition isn't genetic. This is the turning point in the movie, though, like I said, that isn't clear at the time. This is where all of the visions that Kate has had turn into physical attacks, and this is also my least favorite part of the movie. Kate sees the ghost of the previous governess, Miss Jessel, and she follows her and discovers that Miss Jessel never left. She was killed. Kate finds Miss Jessel's body hidden in a pond not far from the house. Kate returns to the house and ends up in the side of the house that Flora warned her about. Kate sees the ghost of a previous stable hand, Quint, sexually assaulting the ghost of Miss Jessel. Kate is then attacked by this unseen force, and the commotion leads Mrs. Gross to find Kate. Kate confronts Mrs. Gross about her discovery of Miss Jessel and Quint, and Mrs. Gross reveals that she knew all about it all along. She knew Quint killed Miss Jessel, and Mrs. Gross reveals that she even killed Quint herself. This leads to a bit of a chase sequence that ends with the ghost of Quint pushing Mrs. Gross over the upstairs banister down to her death. By this point, I was squirming in my seat. Not because I was scared or tense, but because I was about done with this movie. I felt like it was throwing out all of the good psychological work it had done for a CGI action sequence. Kate then gets Miles and Flora into the car, and she drives away. As Kate approaches the front gates of the estate, though, we, the audience, are treated to a very wide overhead shot that pulls back further and further. As we pull back, we see that the now small dot of a car is actually driving along Kate's mother's charcoal drawing. The movie has jumped back to the scene where Kate first receives her mom's drawings and Mrs. Gross makes the jerky comment about genetics. My eyes rolled. This is the part that caused me the most confusion in my own reaction. I wasn't confused by the movie so much, I understood what was happening, but I had a hard time remembering exactly what happened before and after this specific scene. Were all the moments of physicality and exposition contained in the part of the movie that was redone? I had to read a synopsis to remember, 
but I think another viewing is still in order for me to really get a sense of how I feel about this gigantic backtrack. But anyway, we're back in the picture scene. Instead of finding Miss Jessel's body or seeing the ghostly attack by Quint, Kate happens upon Miles and Flora who are talking about her. Miles smirks in his condescending way as he talks about how he thinks that Kate is losing her mind, and Flora seems scared of Kate. The distance of this scene from the scene before the action sequence made it difficult to really get a grip on where these three characters were emotionally as I was watching. Flora in particular seemed oddly distant, more so than she had been in the entire film. Miles was a butthole as always, so that felt fine. But the whole scene just felt a little bit odd. Kate frightened Flora further by insisting that she and Miles had seen the ghost of Quint in the house just like Kate had, and the scene ended with Miles leading Flora away with a condescending smile on his face. After that, we jump to seeing Kate back in the empty swimming pool where her mother was at the beginning of the movie. Kate approaches the slouched figure of her mother, but when Kate sees her mom's face, she screams. The end. We don't see what Kate saw, we don't see her mom's face, we're just left to think about what all of this meant. The credits then play as we see Kate kind of dreamily dragging her hand across a wall inside the house. Now if you've made it this far, then I hope you can see why I had a hard time reconciling my initial reaction with what I actually saw. I did not like the action sequence, and I did not like the backtrack to the scene with the pictures and the genetics comment. I understand why it was pivotal, but that kind of thing kind of feels cheap to me. It's like someone waking up at the end of a movie and realizing, oh, it was all a dream. What I did like about all of this were the final shots of Kate with her mother. I thought that part was actually pretty great. Seeing Kate's face as she reeled back in horror and screamed, but not seeing what Kate saw was fantastic in my opinion. To me, that clearly says that yes, Kate went off the deep end just like her mother. When she looked at her mother, she really saw herself. Whatever mental instability that her mother had runs in the family, and the pressures of her time with Miles, Flora, and Mrs. Gross were the things that pushed Kate over the edge. Were there ever really any ghosts in the house? Maybe, maybe not. If not for that stupid shot of the mannequin, it would all be a very neat and tidy way of portraying the entire haunting as a representation of Kate's descent into madness. I adore movies that do that kind of thing well. The turning did that well, but it also tried to do too much. After some contemplation, the scene where the ghost of Quint attacks Kate and then Mrs. Gross felt like a compromise by the filmmakers. It felt like a producer or someone with money on the line wanted some action to sell the movie to fans of some of the more basic haunted house movies out there. The movies where the subtext is minimal and it's all about scary, spooky jump scares and action. Maybe that's not the case, but that's how it came across to me. Those movies can be fine, but the turning was going in such a good and, in my opinion, better direction than that. And that's about all I really have to say. I do think the turning opened up a lot of interesting thoughts for me. It made me look at what I really do and don't like about ghost stories. I think I already knew it instinctually, but it helped me to better articulate it, I think. And I'd watch the turning again. In fact, I still feel like I need to watch it again, just so I can keep track of what's happening while knowing what's coming. I might get a better appreciation for the parts that fell flat for me the first time. It also makes me want to watch more of my favorite haunted house movies again, and when I do, I might just be talking about them here in the last theater, and you'll be able to find those episodes on cnjradio.com, the home of the last theater, and the family of CNJ Radio podcasts. 
Also check out The Last Theater on Twitter, at The Last Theater. And we're on Facebook, which you can find through cnjradio.com. And if you're interested, you can give me a follow on my personal Twitter account. I post about all sorts of things there, including lots and lots of movies that I don't get a chance to talk about here on the show. I've currently been doing a challenge for myself where I am attempting to watch at least one movie every single day throughout 2020, and I post about every movie I watch over there, so you can check that out at highspot underscore 437. That'll about do it for tonight, though. I'll talk to you next time, which will most likely be a review of the newly released Gretel and Hansel. Until then, bye.